Father, thank you for bringing us together again this morning, and, and Lord, thank you for our time of, of worship together, and we're, we're grateful already for what we have been able to partake this morning, both in the um, bold pro- proclamation of your word and, and Lord, in the sharing of the gospel feast, and we're grateful. So as we move now to John's gospel, we, we've heard from Luke this morning, and I, and I pray as we go to John that you'll give us again that do sense of all your mercies as you've revealed your own glory in the person and work of your Son. And we ask these things in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, so we're in John chapter 1. I should probably just rename the class A Study in John 1 to 4. Um, I really don't think we'll get past 4, the more I think about it. Um, and that's okay. I mean, that's, you know, I, I, I've come to realize that the writing... The, the writing of books and the writing of articles or the writing, any kind of writing project and teaching and, and probably parenting too, you're never really finished. You just have to abandon it. You know, it's like someone's like, I just got to abandon that. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll abandon this class at some point. We are in John 1. Uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And I, I don't want to put the card in reverse this morning. I've done that too much already. So we're going to go straight forward. Um, and as we move into this particular area of John's, John's Gospel, there is a claim that's being made that's quite unique in the way in which Jesus is being portrayed in the fourfold Gospel. In the beginning was the Word. Uh, in Arche, we talked about this in the last five minutes of last week. In Arche is the Greek term here that is um, a term that is the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Bereshit, which is the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And here John makes a rather um, provocative and intriguing claim about the identity of Jesus of Nazareth. This particular figure here that you're dealing with, this man, Jesus Christ, that figure was in the beginning with God and was the means by which the world was created. He is the means, the second person of the Trinity, He is the means by which the whole world came into being. And you know that as you look into Genesis chapter 1 and you begin to think through the beauty of that first creation account in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then you go to the next verse and boy, there are literally libraries written on how to understand and interpret the relationship between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, right? Why? I mean, what's the, what's the, the, uh, the juggernaut there? The difficulty? Well, the second verse says, And the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep, and the waters were formless and void, and the Spirit came, and He then brought cosmos order to the chaos. And what it seems to be intimating in verse 2 is that there is some material pre-existence that's going on that the Spirit of God is coming to hover over to bring into order. In the ancient Near Eastern world, this was referred to as the tohom, as the deep, um, as the chaos, the waters of chaos. And I think, you know, without getting into the details, I think Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2 probably need to be kept distinct from one another because verse 1 is making a claim about the character of God as creator, and that is the God who takes from nothing and brings to being something. Now, he takes from non-matter and he makes the material world. Um, did I did I mention Tolkien last week? 
some of you Tolkien buffs will remember this. Okay. Now, Tolkien, who I would love to claim that I have some sort of knowledge on Tolkien, but I read Lord of the Rings. I can't say I loved it. I mean, I know. I apologize, Stokes. I know that's really disturbing. I like it, and I'll like it with my kids as well. Um, Okay, so, but but Tolkien, without doubt, is um, a genius, literarily. Because what what did Tolkien do? I mean, Tolkien (laughs) created a world, Middle Earth, that had its own particular ecosystem and its own way of being. And he creates this, and not only that, he creates a, a language that goes along with the world of Middle Earth. So he creates an idiolect, a language, and he also creates a world. And it's rather profound what Tolkien pulled off. I mean, it's a little wonder to me. Don't tell anybody, all right? We'll keep this between us. It's a little wonder to me that Tolkien would read C.S. Lewis's stories and go, eh, <laughs> you know, they're, they're all right. I mean, they, they don't come near to the achievement that I achieved, right? I mean, I, never, but that's kind of the deal. Someone put it to Tolkien, who was a rather um, committed and robust Roman Catholic. Someone put it to Tolkien, are you a creator? And he gave a proper Christian response. The response was, no, because there's only one creator. If I can be identified as anything, I'm a sub-creator. You know, I'm taking from, I'm drawing from multiple things and bringing something new, but I'm not the creator. Out of nothingness comes something. So when John frames Jesus the way in which he does in these first four verses of John's Gospel, he is making a claim about the identity of Jesus in relation to the identity of God the Father such that now one cannot begin to speak about the one without the other. In the beginning was the Word. At the beginning of time was the Word. And the Word, which assumes that He had pre-existed before that, And the Word was with God, and the Word um, was God. And then verse 2, He was in the beginning with God. Verse 3, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. You get the sense here. Material existence does not exist apart from the creative agency of the Word of God who is properly identified now as Jesus of Nazareth. I don't know if we really believe that. The weight of that to sit on us, right? Because for good or for ill, especially in our sort of post-scientific age, and thank the Lord for science and what all science has discovered, it's it's an enormous thing. But sometimes science overreaches its boundaries. In other words, what science does is it deals with the material world and tries to give an account of how the material world works and what are the mechanisms that work there and through a very sort of complicated process. And you all know, of course, science is a living dynamic, paradigm shift. You move from Newtonian physics to Einsteinian physics. I mean, the world's changing all the time in the way in which scientists view reality. But scientists cannot give an account of the larger story, um, of, of the way in which, of why the world is, of how the world came into being. They really can't give an account of that. There was an article in uh, Wall Street Journal a year or so ago in the Weekend Review from Heinrich Pace, P-A-S, and I think he's a physicist that teaches up at Harvard, but he's from Austria or, or somewhere in Germany or Austria. And he wrote a little book called The Perfect Wave, which is this book on the neutrino particle. I don't know anything about it. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm like, a, I'm, when I start reading phys- physicists, I'm like, the, I'm like when I'm at the mechanics. 
Oh, you need to replace the transmission? Okay, here's the money, right? It's like, I, I don't know. I mean, sure, you're right. I don't know. Um, so I'm, I'm reading this book on physics just because I'm trying to sort of stretch my mind and understand what's going on, and it's fascinating. And But do you know what he says at the end of the book? I'm not, I was quite taken by this. For all of the advances that have been made in the realm of physics and quantum physics and quantum mechanics and whether string theory or not, for all the achievements, scientists cannot really give an answer for how all this happened. Much less can we give an answer why. And so, so we're not trying to pit science and faith over against one another. I hope, we, I hope we don't hear that. But I think what we're claiming is science is within, its, its disciplinary boundaries are limited. And it cannot give metaphysical answers. It cannot give a meta-narrative about why the world actually is and what its purpose is toward its end. And John's Gospel steps in without any hiccuping. No white noise interference in between the claims of the first four verses to say, by the way, are you looking for a metaphysic? Are you looking for an intellectual strategy to make sense of how the world is and why it is and how you can know that it is? Are you looking for that? And by the way, are you looking for a meta narrative? Are you looking for a story that's going to help you put all the pieces together, right? It doesn't mean you're going to put it together perfectly or be understanding, but you have a sense of who's in control here, how this thing came into being and where it's going. Do you want that? John 1, 1 to 4. In the beginning was the Word. Not, without, not one thing was made apart from Him. Hebrews goes a step further to clarify this and says, and by the way, the world is continually preserved on its atom, at atomic level by the continued agency of the creative powers of the second person of the Trinity. I mean, I, I don't know. You, you get what that means? It's like, if Jesus is not sustaining the world together by the power of His Word, by the power of Himself, then everything flies apart. Everything does. And we are, whether we like to admit it or not, and I would put myself right in this category, we're, we're by nature, I think, especially where we are, given our even pedestrian scientific knowledge, we're, we're, we're all pretty much deists, aren't we, right? I mean, God started this thing, and He left it according to its natural laws, and, and all this, all, every once in a while, God will sort of step into the scene, and then He'll step out of the scene, and we call those miracles. By the way, that one of the most difficult things to define theologically is a miracle. Because what you often do in your definition of a miracle is to, is to actually affirm a deistic understanding that led to that. What's a miracle? It's when God suspends the natural order and does something crazy. Which means that He's kind of sitting back watching it when it's kind of going according, you know, when, when we're on autopilot. Right? Now, the sun going up and the sun coming down, of course, we know that's not how it works, but that kind of observation that we see, we know what's going to happen tomorrow and the next day. We can sort of base things on the rotation of the seasons. But what John's Gospel and Colossians 1 and Hebrews chapter 1 tells us is, yes, you can give a scientific account of that, but the metaphysical answer to that is, those things don't happen tomorrow without the creative agency of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus of Nazareth. They don't happen. It's astounding, isn't it? Um, you know, I don't know how we talk with our kids about this, but I think one of the ways we talk with our kids about this is, well, the sun came up this morning, God's at it again, right? God's at it again. I think that's the, you know, all, right. all things hold together through, with Him and nothing was made um, without Him. Look at verse 4. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. 
What's the claim here? Life and light come from Jesus. Life and light. Where did life come from in the Genesis account? It came from the creative power of God's Word. That's where life came from. And where did light come from in the Genesis account? Light comes from um, the overcoming of the darkness. So you have life and you have light that are coming from the Word of Jesus. His creative power to hold all things together. If I can give you an illustration of this from the creation account, and then I'm going to press on. Um, You know, the the, the ways in which Genesis uh, 1 uh, structures the days of the week with the creation account. You have day 1, the light from the darkness, and then day 2, day 3, and then you have 4, 5, and 6. I think the ways in which that works from a literary standpoint is day 1, you have light and and um, and darkness. Day four, you have the luminary bodies, stars and sun and that sort of thing. And then day two, you have the sea and the, the firmament and the land, and then you have birds and fishes. And So you, what you have is a one to four, two to five, three to six. There's a dynamic there where the first three days tell us something about the order of creation, but the four, day four, five, and six fill all of that out. Right, what what was claimed in the first uh, three days, and one of the things there you see is the land is separated from the water. Water in the Old Testament um, was always pernicious. I'll just say it. I mean, you, you, some of you remember from the school days, or you try to fin- fill in some of your gaps like I have in my own life, and you say, "I need to read the Iliad, or I need to read the Odyssey, or if I, if you really want to be entertained, I'm going to read the Aeneid." All right, I'm going to read these things. And uh, you know what happens, right? Odysseus, he's there battling Troy, and, and uh, he's going home, and they meant to take a left, and they ended up taking a right, and all of a sudden, you know, it's just all hell breaks loose. And he's lost. Why? Because Odysseus is at the power of the sea. Aeneas, you know, he goes and he falls in love with Dido, and, and then he goes, but what happens? But he ends up there in Carthage. Why? Because he was held hostage by the pernicious presence of the sea. Uh, Jonah gets thrown into the where the sea. So we love I mean, the thought of going to Gulf Shores and hanging out for you know Christmas uh, spring break. Yeah, let's go. Right. I think most of the people in the ancient Eastern world were like, I'd rather stay inland. Right. I'd rather stay inland. <laughs> now, why the, the sea is a, it's a, it's a, it's a, so so. What do you see in, in the Genesis account? It's the creative and effective power of God's word that keeps the sea from enveloping the land. The sea was there first, and it was chaotic. We heard a little bit about that from the illustration this morning with that cruise ship. I mean, oh, just you know, shoot me now. What a terrible experience, right? Why? Because the sea is a pernicious presence, often the place of God's judgment. And it's the power of God's Word that keeps the sea from enveloping the land. I don't know if we think about it this way, but the biblical worldview on the relationship of the land to the sea is what keeps... The Gulf of Mexico and the Atlantic Ocean from enveloping Florida. Answer? Jesus is powerful and effective word right now. That's the answer. So this is a pretty big claim that's being made here in John chapter 1 verses 1 through 4 about Jesus being with God, being apart from God, but yet being identified as God, and he is the means of of the the creative force of of the world. Verse 14 I'm skipping, obviously. And the Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. 
glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Um, we beheld His glory. This is a major theme in the book of John. To behold the glory of God. Now, now glory in the Old Testament, the Hebrew term is kavod. And the word, if you looked it up in a dictionary or a lexicon, would say kavod means um, glory. <laughs> okay, thanks. And then you'd go on and say weight, gravity, heaviness. There's a sense in which the glory of God that's being revealed is the, the heaviness, the weightiness of His presence. So if we're thinking, again, I think John is thinking in Old Testament terms here, we think Shekinah glory. We think cloud that comes down in the middle of the day and separates the Egyptian army from the people of Israel as they face the Red Sea. We think the pillar of fire by night that led them through the land. It's God's Shekinah glory. It's His presence among His people. And so here John is claiming the Word the second person of the Trinity, the Logos, became flesh. Now, I don't want to necessarily go into sort of theological abstractions with you, but this is important to keep these two things distinct. Number one, never a time when the second person of the Trinity, the Son, did not exist. Can, can I give you another frame a view on this? The Father was not always Creator, but He was always the Father. There's never a time when the Father was not the Father. He eternal, we said this in the Nicene Creed just this morning. Begotten, remember this? Begotten, not made. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. So there's never a time when the Son was not an eternal, triune, perfected fellowship with the Father by the Spirit in an eternal communion of love. There was no need within the eternal life of God to create there was no external, extrinsic reality pressuring on the internal life of God to say, you need something. You're deficient. There's a lack here. I'm, as some of the old spirituals would say, I'm lonely. God's not lonely, right? So why does God create? As an overflow of His goodness and His love and His beneficence toward us. That's His aim. Um, so this eternal triune life of God, there was never a time when the second person of the Trinity was not. But there was a time when the second person of the Trinity was not a man. That's why this word became here is so important in John 1.14. And the word became flesh. He took on that which he did not have. He lowered himself in the, in the language of Philippians 2. He, he lowered himself how? By actually taking on the form of humanity and becoming fully man. And I'm going to tell you what, you want to talk about a doctrine that has exercised the church from the 4th century, really from the beginning, all the way into the present day, where there are more debates among Christians across the world, Orthodox Christians, all right, across the world is, well, how does that work, all right? How exactly is he God and then he becomes a man and he retains that humanity forever, if God is immutable, how then the incarnation? I mean, these are the kind of questions that keep theologians in, you know, mortgage-paying jobs, right? <laughs> um, and I will just say to you that the answer that we give, and I hope we, me too, I thought about this morning as we said the Nicene Creed, can learn to pay attention uh, to the little words that we say that we believe together, like the beginning of the second article of the Nicene Creed. 
and in one Lord Jesus Christ. You see that? We said, we said that all together this morning. One Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the second person of the Trinity, when He takes on human flesh, is a singular subject. It's very important here. Um, he's um, fully God, fully man in one person. He's not a schizoid. Right? He's not... Now I'm going to act according to my humanity. Now I'm going to act according to my divinity. Now my humanity, now my divinity. No, he acts in accord with his singular subject, himself. He's one. The Word became flesh. And in his becoming flesh, in his taking on that which he did not have, do you know what happens? We get saved. I'm using my Baptist language there. But that's right. We get saved. That's what happens when the Word becomes flesh. When He takes on humanity. Because you know what He's doing in this act of humility? This act of self-giving? This act of self-abnegation? Number one, He's neutralizing humanity's pride. Absolutely neutralizing it. How does He neutralize humanity's natural instinct to build ourselves up? The Tower of Babel. That's our natural... Left to ourselves, we, we, we would build the Tower of Babel every time. How does God neutralize our humanity? By coming down. By coming low. By an act of self-abasement. He becomes flesh. And when He becomes flesh and takes on our humanity and shows us what humanity really is, I think we often miss that particular aspect of John's Gospel or the Gospels in their totality. John's Gospel is telling us what it means to be genuinely human. Some of you maybe studied anthropology in college, right? And you studied about all the fascinating theories, and they are fascinating. John's Gospel is giving an anthropology too. And he's saying, do you want to know what humanity is really meant to look like? What humanity is in its perfection? It's Jesus of Nazareth. He's the humanizing human. And in His coming low to take on our humanity, do you know what He does? When He then ascends to the Father, He takes humanity back into the very life of God Himself. And do you know why we get to go to heaven? We get to go to heaven because our humanity is found in the humanity of Jesus. We are, in Paul's favorite phrase, we're in Him. We're in Him. So, when someone asks you the evangelism explosion question, which maybe you get that around Birmingham. I got it once, right? Um, if God were to meet you today, I'm not sure this is very effective, by the way, but if God were to meet you today and were to say, why should I let you into my heaven? Um, the, the proper, I think, Christian answer is because I'm in Him. I'm, I, I'm in Him. I've put my trust in Him and recognize that my humanity, my genuine selfhood um, is in Him. And that's, that's where I'm located. So he becomes flesh. He, receive, he reveals the glory of the Father. He's full of grace. The self-giving of God. He's full of truth. He's full of faithfulness. Verse 17, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now I should just say something quickly here. Um, I'm reading from the ESV. I think the ESV gets this translation right. A lot of translations say, for the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You have that little beauty. There is no Greek con contrastive or disjunctive conjunction there. This is not there. The law came through Jesus. I mean, the law came through Moses, semicolon. 
Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. So I don't think the Apostle John here is pitting Moses versus Jesus. He's certainly setting the one in superiority to the other. But what he's showing is two dispensations of God's gracious economy. But he's saying Moses is meant to be understood in the fullness of what you see here in the person and work of Jesus. Moses doesn't make sense apart from the person and work of Jesus. And in fact, Moses, without Jesus, becomes the dead letter of the law. The means that actually causes you to come to death. In verse 18, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Isn't that something? The only God has made Him known. What is He saying here? Who's the only God that's made Him known? It's the second person of the Trinity. So this is a pretty radical claim <clears throat> about how we construct our view of God. Now, I'm, I'm in a bit of a shift in my own mind on some of these things. I'll be careful not to say more than I should because I'm, I'm in a shift. Okay, um, But I, I'm now at a particular place where I'm more grateful than let's say I was eight to ten years ago for the classic way in which the church tends to talk about God. I mean, when the church talks about God's godness, the church has tended to begin with, especially the Reformed tradition, my tradition, has tended to begin with, um, he's omniscient, he's omnipresent, all these divine attributes. And my reaction to that has been, but when the Bible says, do you want to know who God is, its foot that it puts first forward is, look long and hard at Jesus. I still think that's right. But what I'm kind of thinking through now is I've probably put myself on the horns of a false dilemma. I don't don't need to choose between those two. But I do want to affirm what John is saying here in verse 18 without reservation. Do you want to know what God is like? Do you want to think about what God's godness is like? What it means for God to display His divinity? What it means to be God? Well, then don't think about that in abstraction from a long and hard look at the storied character of Jesus of Nazareth. Want to know what God's like? You look at the person work of Jesus. Or as one American theologian said, God is the one that raised Egypt from the dead in the Old Testament, and He's the selfsame one that raised Jesus from the dead in the New Testament. That's our God. He has revealed to us the face of the Father in the lowliness and the self-giving of the Son. That's how God has demonstrated His glory. And that's what makes these verses right here, 14 to 18, so offensive. Now, we're, we're all... I mean, I'm talking to the choir this morning. You're all Christian types, right? Philosophers can't stand this kind of thing. It doesn't even make sense. Infinity? The infinite God? Even if you affirm that, if you're a theist, you believe in the infinite God, the primary mover, that by which nothing else has been caused to come into being. I mean, if you believe that, well, how in the world can infinity in any way be demonstrated by the finite realities of our world? I mean, philosophers will write tomes on this, and they have. And it's a great question. And what John's Gospel says is, do you want to know why God, the infinite one, the one that nothing caused to come into being but self-sufficient unto Himself forever, do you want to know why He can reveal Himself to you in the human face of Jesus of Nazareth? Because He determined Himself to do that. That's the Christian answer. It might not make a philosopher go, oh, well, thank you, I'll walk out of the room now, I appreciate that, right? Well, what you say is, well, God determined in an act of self-giving that that's how it's going to be. 
Now, we live with all these kinds of distinctions, don't we? You do too, and I do. In other words, we have approximate knowledge of God, which is true. Um, we, God, God assimilates himself to human language like, a ba- like parents, you know, goo-goo-ga-ga to a baby. Um, you know, I've got a little girl. She's about to turn two in June, and she's starting to talk. I'm like, no being one of her favorite words right now. I'm like, no, my God. Right. I was telling my wife, this is, what time is it? Oh, yeah. I was telling my wife, the other, my wife was gone the other day, and I was watching. We've got three older boys and then a little girl. And my wife had left, and I was watching Mary. We were all alone. And uh, I looked at Mary, and I said, Mary, you need to put some of your toys um, away. And she looked at me right in the eye, and she said, no. <laughs> and I said, okay, Mary, you need to put two of your toys <laughs> in the box. And she looked at me in her eyes, in my eyes again, and she said, no. If, I mean, if that would have been one of my boys... I, I mean, it would have been go time, right? And and with her, I was just like, that's fine. You know? <laughs> Who cares about those toys? Right? Um, so anyway, so God, God goo-goos to us. But when he talks to us in human language and in human figures and symbols to reveal who he is, he reveals himself to us really and truly, but not exhaustively. Our language could never exhaust the being of God. And you also know, don't you, that our knowledge of God is not the same as God's own self-knowledge of himself. We make a distinction between those two. But God does reveal himself truly and really in the person and work of his Son, recognizing that our human utterances, our words, can only go so far. Thomas Aquinas, you know, I again, he's another one of these figures that for me is beginning to, you know, I've, I've had a bad view on Thomas, and my mind's changing. I've been reading a lot of them lately, and he's fascinating. We know Aquinas wrote the Summa Theologicae, which is one of the most important systems of doctrine to be written in the history of the church. Um, it's complicated, it's profound, it's brilliant. I mean, this, this, there's a level of brilliance here that would be hard actually to match in our time. It's just he's, he's an astounding figure. And you know the story, don't you? Aquinas was about, this is true story, Aquinas was about four to six months away from completing the writing of the Summa. So four, I mean, and we're talking about, uh, on my shelf, five rather large volumes now. So he, all he had to do was on eschatology, and that was going to be it. He's going to be done. And something happened. He had some, what he identified as, a beatific vision in the cloister there of his Dominican brotherhood and, and that mendicant order. And he saw some sort of vision of the Lord, some sort of vision of heaven. And when it was over, he said, I will never write another thing again. It's incredible, isn't it, right? Um, we strive. We use our words. We talk. But we also know that the medieval mystics got at least one thing right. And that is, when we actually encounter on the far side of the resurrection of the dead, the mystery of the life of God, it will be beyond anything that in this world we could ever have conceived of. And the way in which Dante describes it is music. Strange music that I've never heard before, but was so beautiful I couldn't stop listening. That's what I think we're getting here from John. You want to know who God is? You look at Jesus. But we also know that our understanding of God can never be exhausted. All right. The Lord bless us. Thank you for these rich, this rich text. And we, we just scratched the surface. So much more. Because, Lord, you're so much more. 
So my prayer for my friends here and for me is that whatever view we have of you, that you would expand it, you would grow it, so that we can understand just a little bit more the fullness of your love for us and your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.